on the 25th. Uh, all the information's in your e-bulletin regarding that. There's even a link to a map uh, to the Pfeiffer's home. And I'm very excited about that. Every time a baptism happens, you know what it says to us? It says that God is still saving people. No matter what this world tries to do, no matter what, how the enemy tries to work, he is still saving people. The kingdom of God is going forth. The gates of hell are not prevailing. And uh, it's just a powerful time. And you'd think that, uh, you know, dunking someone in a pool, how could that be so powerful? But what it represents is powerful. And having the body of Christ together as a family, celebrating with those people as they identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and so forth, uh, is is a huge blessing. So we're going to be worshiping the Lord as we're enjoying the baptisms and all that, and then having families be able to come together and swim and have fun and fellowship and so forth. Very excited about that. So remember, baptism is a command. And something that God says to do, and so we need to obey him in that. Also, everything about baptism will be explained. Well, not everything, because I'll be talking. But um, a good part of what baptism represents will be represented there. And I'll explain before we start what it means, what it doesn't mean, and so forth. And so if you're a little bit unclear about that, but you, you want to be baptized, you need to, you need to obey the Lord in that. But we'll give further explanation when we're there on that day. So Saturday, uh, August 25th, 7 to 9 p.m., and uh, check your e-bulletin for the map and, and, and so forth. 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been a wife of one man, been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your word and all the things that we get to enjoy, our relationship with you and and your Holy Spirit that lives inside of each one of us that knows you here today. We thank you, Lord, that you use your word to further conform us into the image of your Son, and that's what we want. But more importantly, you want it more for our lives. So we yield our hearts and our lives to you. 
We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us regarding anything that you want us to change. Lord, we pray that you'd encourage us in every area you want us encouraged, that you would redirect us, that you would exhort us, and all the things that you do through your word. We thank you that there's nothing greater in this world than your word to turn to for wisdom. And we're grateful, Lord, that you've led us in the pattern of the New Testament church to go through it as a family, demonstrating that we're your disciples indeed. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul continues this morning with this great letter to Timothy. I love this letter. I'm really already delving into 2 Timothy and we're very excited about getting to that. But you just think about all the wisdom that we've seen thus far. Amazing wisdom. And just think how valuable this wisdom would be to young Timothy. Just think how much how many times he would read this letter. <laughs> just try, okay, now what did he say? I mean, I, I didn't quite get that. And, you know, I've got to make sure I memorize that. Ooh, that's really good. I've got to make sure I remember that because of this situation. And, and then all the difficult things. It wasn't just a, you know, easy letter for Timothy to read. There's, you know, God's telling him through the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, some very difficult things. He has to hear some hard things. And God tells us hard things. I don't know if I'm the only one. I hope not. I'm the only one that hears hard things from God. But when I read the Scriptures, it, I get dealt with very severely. And I'm, I'm hoping that you, I'm not the only one. But, but God tells Timothy some difficult things to hear some needed things to hear. And when God cultivates our callings, whatever calling we have, we all have a calling in in life. We all have a place of ministry. We all have a place on the wall, so to speak, you know, giving a kind of a Nehemiah reference. We have a place to serve. We have a place to give our lives away for Christ, to allow him to live his life through our lives in blessing others as he loves to do it. And so as we're engaged in those things, we need to hear the difficult things that cultivate that calling. And so that wasn't any different for Timothy. And it's, not, it's, of course, the case for leaders because there's something very specific that God has them in the middle of. And when God says to a leader, this is how I've called you to lead my church, and it is my church, it's, it's, it's incumbent upon that leader to listen and to heed those things. And when leaders leave the word of God and leave the, obeying what God says in his word, it's, it's the time's ticking for their, their uh, ministry destruction, and so often their lives fall apart, and, and, and so there's a lot at stake. But so much more important than that is the collective body of Christ is hurt and damaged, and, and some of you have been hurt by bad church experiences. I have myself. God doesn't want that for any uh, person. And, and he recovers us, and, and he heals us, and so forth. But he hasn't, as we've seen, laid out... Uh, the, the, the destructions for the church that, in such a way to where they're, they're negotiable, because they're not. There's certain things according to Acts 2.42, Ephesians 4, all these different areas where he's laid out, generally speaking, how every church should function. And then there's unique leading by the Spirit on how each particular church is supposed to function regarding their unique calling and ministry and place within the, uh, uh, the local church, the, the overall extended body of Christ. Now, Paul has been writing these various things, and we saw some of them last week, that, that Timothy needed to hear. He said, reject old wives' tales. And there's young wives that have tales. It's not just, uh, you know, limited to older wives, but uh, maybe this was something that was very common in that time where older wives uh, engage in these, these superstitions or these untruths or these uh, things that had no biblical basis. 
And Paul is saying to Timothy, don't engage in those things. You need to reject those things and to teach and command others to reject those things. And he says, instead of doing that, exercise yourself towards godliness. And as we saw last week, there's many words that he used that were athletic terms in their Greek culture because the, the Olympic Games was just as prevalent, probably more prevalent in that day, in that area of the world, than it is in our part of the world. And so he uses these terms to describe uh, the, the, the veracity or the, the, the commitment or the, the, the training schedule and the pain and the, and the difficulty that athletes go through to be able to gain their status or to be able to fulfill their, uh, their, their careers regarding athleticism. And he's saying bodily exercise uh, profits a little when compared to the, the exercise of the spirit or the, the, the spiritual disciplines. And he says way more important. It's profitable for all things. Uh, you know, temporal, physical exercise profits for some things and it's good. But there are more important things that our lives need to be about and never to the neglect of athletic uh, in, you know, uh, schedules and, and regimens and so forth. So that's what he told us to do, to discipline ourselves, to have a plan. To I mean, athletic athletes don't end up in the Olympics by accident. There's a plan. There's a regiment. There's a diet. There's a sleeping schedule. There's all kinds of things. There's, it's not just happenstance. It's very purposeful. And he says that that's what our life should look like. Where are we headed spiritually? And if we're going the wrong direction, we need to make that U-turn and go the right direction and, ha- and seek the Lord related to a very specific spiritual training regimen for our lives so that we can be godly and be like our Heavenly Father. You know, he said, be holy for I am holy. That's the only attribute that I'm aware of that God says for us to share in, for it to, to be holy as I am holy. And that's a, it's an incredible privilege. But he also said last week, as we saw, That because of those things, Paul and his team were suffering reproach. And they were suffering persecution. And so we're we're told elsewhere that Paul would, uh, you know, tell Timothy that that those who desire to live a godly life will, not might, will suffer persecution. And then he said in in chapter 4, verse 11, these things command and teach. They weren't just for Timothy. It wasn't something just for him. And I've said this all through, you know, as we've begun these pastoral epistles. That these standards for leaders are not higher than the standard that he has for the, the, the rest of, of men, you know, godly men, and also even women in, in many respects. Not everything carries over. But uh, most, of the, most of it has to do with character and godliness, which does carry over for women. So what God is saying is, I don't have a higher standard for leaders. I just want you, Timothy, to verify that these people that, are, that you have your eye on for leadership are the things that I've called every Christian man to be. And it's not any different with these things that he, that he mentioned last week that we saw. So he said also to not let anyone despise your youth. And, and he didn't tell them to throw your weight around and to, to, to you know, demand it and, and be a strong-willed and, and, you know, show people what their place is. He says, no, this is how you do that. You're an example. And, and that's how you have someone not despise your youth. Because they'll say, this man's godly. I, I don't know why I was judging this person as not someone that I should listen to because they're more godlier than I am. And they, more importantly, have a calling that I don't have in the body of Christ as a leader. And God has grace for them for things that he doesn't for me, potentially, related to how the church should function. 
So he, he, he uh, encouraged him in that. And then lastly, we saw him tell him, don't neglect the gift that is in you. That was given by the laying on of hands and you found out about through prophecy. And, and, and to not neglect that and to meditate on all these things and to, to watch his doctrine, to watch his life, to give himself entirely to those things. And he said if, if Timothy did that, then he would preserve or deliver both himself and uh, those who hear him. And it was a very good admonition. Now this week as we begin chapter 5, Paul starts to begin speaking about relationships how the body of Christ is supposed to function in the context of this family that we uh, are a part of. And we are a part of a family. It's not by accident that I regularly refer to our church as a family. I do it purposely to remind us that God sees us not only as a body and not only as a a building. He describes us as a, a building, but he describes us as a family. And he's going to instruct Timothy on how to have appropriate relationships as the pastor of the church, as the leader in the church. There can be so much damage done by leaders who do not know how to have a proper relationship with people in their congregation. And no leader is going to be perfect at it for sure. But there are some very specific things that God has in mind and wisdom, and, and we need to take heed to those things. Now, Timothy is younger. He's in his 30s. He's between 33 and 38, somewhere in there. And when you're younger, it's a little bit harder for you to know how to navigate relationships, isn't it? You know, when you're, I remember as a, as a young boy, it was a revelation to me that I was supposed to shake someone's hand and say, nice to meet you, and look them in the eye. I've been trying to work with my son with that. He's a little bit timid sometimes, and, and it's hard for him to look someone in the eye, and he's like purposely trying to you know, get his eyes on their eyes and shake their hand. It's like taking every bit of concentration that little guy can muster to try to do it right. Uh, but so often in, in relationships with youth, it's, it's hard for them to know how to, how to have proper relationships. And so Paul gives Timothy very important instruction and wisdom on how to handle these relationships properly. And it would take every bit of grace that Timothy needed from God to be able to do these things appropriately. Relationships take work. Any good relationship requires work on both people. And if both people aren't engaged in that work, the relationship will suffer. And God's called every one of our relationships in this family to prosper. And for God to use each one of us to pour into the other person, to be other-centered, so that we can further develop one another through our gifts and to build one another up into maturity. That's his goal. And coupled with that is the equipping of the saints through the leadership. And both of those things have to happen concurrently for the church to be what God's designed it to be. And churches sometimes either sacrifice the, the equipping and they're all relational or they're, or they're uh, all doctrine and all teaching and there's no relationships whatsoever. And there's no using my gifts. and you know Because these relationships are designed... To, to be edifying to one another. God has no intention of our relationships among one another except using our gifts to build one another up and to love one another. And so it's important for us to see. But it has to come from the, from the leaders. They have to lead by example first. And so Paul knows that. He knows that most of the people in that church in Ephesus are older than him. At least there's a significant amount of them that are older that are not respecting him because he's under 40. And, and so he's, he's trying to fight against that. He's a little bit timid. And, 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 God, and God says through Paul, it doesn't matter what your natural disposition is. You've called to lead this flock. 
And so God's given you all the grace you need to stand up and, you know, as I've said many times, to pastor up and, and to be the leader that God had called him to be. So he needs, this, he needs this wisdom and he needs to know how to function within the body. Every, every pastor needs to and every one of us needs to know regarding how we should deal with, with one another. Now, you'll, as we begin here, Paul's going to talk about these, these relationships in the context of a family. And it's not by accident that he does it. And he begins in verse 1 with how to treat uh, older men and younger men. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. So he begins with older men. And he says, don't rebuke. And that word means to strike. And it's talking about a verbal strike. When you rebuke someone, and sometimes rebuke is needed, but you have to know who you're called to rebuke and who you're not called to rebuke. Timothy is not, and no pastor, no leader is called to rebuke an older man. But, he, but we're called to exhort him, and that means to encourage and to stir up and to challenge appropriately and so forth, as he would as a father. Again, now he's starting the family terms here. Father, he's about father and mothers and brothers and sisters and all that because he's describing the local church as a family. He doesn't want Timothy to, to miss this. And he says, I want you to speak to those older men. And a lot of them needed to be rebuked. <laughs> they did. All these, these de- uh, debates about the law that he spoke about in chapter 1 and these endless genealogies and all these things, those were mostly by those older men. So they needed confrontation, but there was a, a, an appropriate way to do that through encouragement, through uh, you know, encouraging them that they can obey the word of God as, in, in an appropriate, respectful way. And that's important. It's so easy when you, when you think you know something, and that's why leaders who impress with what they know are very dangerous, and it's in all of us, that when we approach someone that's older and we, we need to correct them because there's definitely something that needs to, to be changed in their life that God's called us to and we're led by the Spirit to speak into, we need to do it tactfully and appropriately and in, as you would a father. He's saying you shouldn't respect your earthly father any more than you respect a spiritual uh, older person in your life. And they don't get less respect just because they're spiritual uh, elders in your life. And so it's important for Timothy to see that. But he doesn't stop with them. He says, the younger men. And so he's saying, don't lead those who are your age or younger in such a way to where you treat them with, with less respect or you don't call them to a higher standard. You can do that, but you need to do so as a brother, as, as, a, as a, you would a, a, you know, an earthly brother. And you don't, how do you treat an earthly brother? You don't talk down to them. You don't condescend to them. And you don't go down to their level if they're younger than you and, and, and are just as immature as they are. You're an example to them. If you're an older brother, and that's probably what he's talking about here is men that are younger than Timothy. You lead by example and you encourage them and you help them, but you don't talk down to them and you don't uh, treat them with disrespect. You, you encourage them and you help them and you speak to them in intimate terms. We shouldn't speak to our spiritual brothers in any less intimate terms as we do our physical brothers. He's saying this is something that, this is how ministry is done properly. Treat them with respect. Don't speak down to them. And, and you can challenge them, but do it appropriately as you would any brother that you may have. So that's great wisdom for young Timothy. Now verse 2, he starts with women, uh, 
uh, older women, and no pastor's going to define who's the older women and who's the younger. <laughs> He's smart. He's not going to, you know, you're right on the line there. I don't know if you're younger or older, but you know what? I'm just going to call you older, <laughs> you know, if that's okay with you. Then they duck because something's getting thrown at them probably. But he says there are those people. Timothy knows who are, who are older, and, and, and likely it's older than him. Uh, but he says these older women treat them as mothers. Timothy, speak to these, these women in the, in the fellowship like you'd speak to your mom. Now, we're, we're, we're presupposing a healthy son-mother uh, you know, situation or, 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 or analogy that we can think about. But maybe some of us have never seen that. Maybe you growing up. I mean, I was very disrespectful to my mom at times. And I didn't know the Lord and was very stubborn, as you might expect. And, uh, you know, it was, I was very disrespectful. And I was probably um, less disrespectful than I may think at this time, but maybe not. I, I really can't remember all that I said and did. But I know that there was plenty of disrespect to go around. So we can't, I can't use my background as an example. But when I've seen healthy sons treat their, their mothers with respect and, and to help them and to encourage them, uh, that's an, a good example for me because I never saw it in real life. But, I, but uh, later on, you know, I had a, um, just saw yesterday in the hospital, uh, the woman that was the, that her, her, her and her husband took me in when I was a senior in high school because my mom had died. And so I was, I was without a family or without parents. And they, they took me in. He was a radiologist and I did my senior year with them. And, and, and I'm very thankful for them and what they did for me. But when I see her now, since my mom's already with the Lord, you know, she's like my mom. You know, and I and I, if I were to correct her, I'd be very careful how I'd correct her. I'd be very appropriate. I'd be very respectful. And and Paul is saying, just like you would any mother in a healthy fa- uh, mother-son relationship, look at those spiritual, uh, those in your spiritual family, those that are older than you, as the leader, uh, with respect, and to treat them as you would your your physical mom. And I know that Timothy had a good mom. Um, uh, Eunice was her name, had a good mom that raised him up, and Paul will mention that. Uh, now he says, younger women here, and treat them as sisters, and that's important because as a pastor, the last thing, because he notice he mentions at the end of verse 2, with all purity. That's not by accident that the Holy Spirit put that there. Because the last thing that a, that a, a godly woman or any woman in the, in the church needs to sense from a leader is that there's anything going on in his mind regarding attracted to her or flirting. And I've seen flirting by leaders in the body of Christ. I'm just curious, how many women have sensed a leader flirt with you in the body of Christ? Put up your hand. Is anyone here? One? Okay, that's, that's great. I've been in environments where I've, I've heard women say, I've had that happen. You know, that's the last thing that God wants because that's the last thing a, a woman should sense from a leader. This place should be, and any time the body of Christ gathers, should be a refuge. It should be a place where they don't have to even think about the ways of this world and ungodly behavior and all those things. Now, men are, men are still men, and they still have sinful natures, and they still have to guard those things. It's not like they don't have the capacity to do that, but they have to be very careful and, and die to that just like they've always died to those things. But women can never sense any flirting, any, you know, anything 
And if a leader is tempted in any way, he needs to just remove himself and have very, very limited exposure with much accountability around him whenever he's around that person. So he says, treat him as you would your sisters. We're not attracted physically to our sisters. You know, we, we treat them, we love them, we care for them, they're part of our family. He's saying, see the younger women, Timothy, as your sister, as you would your sister. My sisters, I love my sisters. I can't believe they even talked to me today, how I treated them. Uh, but I'm so thankful for them. And you women here, I see you as my sisters, and I call you sister, uh, and, and I love that, and I, I value you. I feel like my family's just exploded in terms of the, the resources that I have at my disposal related to brothers and sisters that I have in the body of Christ. Now notice at the end of verse 2, oh, I already covered that. Let me move on. Um, let me get situated here. I had a brain freeze. I'm not even eating anything cold here. Uh, verse 3, there we go. <laughs> Honor widows who are really widows. Now he's going to get into some real specific things here. And you're like, well, why are we covering this? Because it's God's word. And there's really widows in the body of Christ. And they really have needs. And there are really some that God says, as we'll see, the church... Uh, is it's not their, the church's responsibility to help them as much as they would care and, for them and want to, but it's other people's responsibility. There are widows that truly need our help. But before we begin, I want to just mention God's always had a heart for the widows and the fatherless. All through the New Testament, all through the Old Testament, he's had a heart for widows and the fatherless. And as someone has said, the common denominator between those two groups of people is that something has happened to them that's out of their control had nothing to do with their faith, faithfulness or not, or their sin or whatever. It's just they've, they're fatherless or they're uh, without a husband. And so very important for us to see God's heart in all this. God's you know, dedicating all these verses to make sure that these people are taken care of and that God's resources are, are targeted towards a very specific group of people that he has in mind. Now he has a screening process uh, as we'll see. And he begins it in verse 4. He says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So there is a screening process. He's going to get into a handful of things here. And so what he's saying here, he's starting to say, these widows have to uh, be without help already from their family. He's saying if they have a, f- a support structure regarding their family, they need to, the family needs to step up and help them. That's not the candidate that's going to be entered into the numbers he refers to in a moment. That's not the group of people that God is, you know, is, is targeting. He's targeting a special uh, group of people. And in our culture, especially kind of in our entitlement society, we think that we're owed by everybody. And sometimes that can carry over into the church, you know, and the church is just, it's like a bank and, you know, uh, we need to tap into the resources there. And, and, and God, God doesn't, is, is about fulfilling the Great Commission and taking care of the people in certain ways, but there, there is guidelines for that. And what he doesn't want is he doesn't want to rob the children and the grandchildren or the family of the privilege of blessing the woman, this widow, that spent so much of her time and her life blessing them. How many of us know how, how rewarding it is to help those who've helped us? Sometimes we're just looking for ways to bless people who have blessed us. 
And God knows it's the same with our, our earthly relationships here. That we have, if we have a mom and, and, and our dad is, has passed away, and we're, we have a, or grandchildren, we are grandchildren, and we have a grandfather or grandmother that uh, is, is in need because of they've, they've lost a spouse, we need to take responsibility for that. We need to take that under our own. This isn't change in 2,000 years. We still, people still die. People still have needs. And if there's someone in our, in our life, then we have the power to help. God has called us to help. And so the church can't possibly, no institution, government or any other institution, even the church, cannot take care of everybody's needs. It wasn't set up that way. It wasn't designed for that. There are a very targeted group of people that the church is called to, to help when the church is able, and, and it's not the people that, uh, that have family that can, that can help these widows. So he says in verse 5, now she who is really a widow, and he's going to go through some things here, and he starts with uh, who's left alone, as we see that this, this backs up verse 4, you know, they're alone. They're not, they don't have a family unit to help them. But also this widow is supposed to be a widow that trusts in God. She's not looking for to be to be uh, bailed out or to to. She's not dependent. She doesn't want to get helped by the church. That's not what they're they're. She's seeking out to have happen. She doesn't want to be dependent upon anybody. She wishes she could be fruitful and work and 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 supply for her own needs first of all. But she has to submit to how God set things up. And when the leaders come and say, hey, we want to help you out, she says, okay, I'm going to humble myself and do it. But it's not someone that feels like they're owed and like this is, you know, I'm looking at the church just to meet my needs. No, it says right there, she trusts in God. She doesn't trust in the church. She trusts in God. God's her source. She knows that. And and then also she's a woman of prayer. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And this doesn't mean that she does nothing else in her life whatsoever except pray 24-7. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that she is quick to pray. She prays without ceasing. Anytime there's a need, she's, she's bringing that up before the Lord. She's, she's staying up at night if necessary to pray. She's available. That's kind of the, 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 the flavor of this. She's available to pray, and she's demonstrating this already in her life. And she's a woman of prayer, and she's available to do that and to intercede all the time. So he's narrowing the person that the church is supposed to help. Narrowing it, narrowing it, narrowing it down. And he's going to continue. He also adds there in verse 6 that she um, is not one that lives for pleasure. Because the one that lives for pleasure is dead while she lives. Like In other words, it's it. the one that lives for pleasure is as if they've already died because they're, they're, her life is not being used how God intended it to be used. She's supposed to be using it to serve others and to give her life away, but, she, but instead she's living for pleasure. That's not the person that God is saying should, Timothy should target related to helping her uh, physical needs because, you know, in a sense, she's already passed away because she's not being used how God wants to use her. So, so obviously this is saying that she's fruitful. She doesn't live supremely for herself. She lives, she's living for others. She's bearing fruit. It's a pattern that everyone from without can already see and notice. And already everyone is, sees her fruitfulness and her being used by the Lord. And it's blessing people. He's saying, you're getting closer to the person that I'm targeting for help. Uh, that's a widow. Verse 7. And these things command that they may be blameless. And so he, he wants them to know you need to command these things. There are others that 
are not quite going this direction yet with their character and their fruitfulness and their prayer lives and all that. And Timothy, I want you to come in and I want you to instruct those that, that are not in that situation to start going that direction. And again, that would take him uh, you know, to, to lead how God has called him to lead. And he says, so that they may be blameless. Now, that's God's will for all of us. Don't read perfection into blameless. Blameless is really referring to how everyone from without generally sees our lives. They don't see our thoughts. They don't see our motivations. They don't see our whole life 24 hours a day. God does. And, and so, but it, we need to be known and have a reputation for what people typically see out of our lives, and that is blameless. It should be all of our goal in, in life, for each one of our lives, for people to say about our lives, that person is a, is, a, is a person of character. They're blameless. I can't think of anything that I could really point to related to their, uh, you know, lack of spirituality or character. Now, Paul puts a little APB out, an all-points bulletin, uh, for those who are illegitimate leaders in their homes. Uh, and look with me in verse 8. He gets in the specifics. He says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially of those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, this is always quoted related to husbands providing for their family. And he's saying that because he says those of his own household. So, of course, there's application. But really, the context here is talking about taking care of widows that are in need. And there's a general application for, obviously, men are called to take care of their homes and, and to provide and to work hard and, and all those things. Uh, but he's saying we need to take care of not just our family, but our extended family and those that are in our family that uh, are in need, especially widows. And, and if we can have such a cold heart that we're willing to let those in our family uh, go and starve and not be helped when they're in dire need, then we're just self-deceived about our spiritual condition. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. And so there is a test that we're supposed to <laughs> take uh, and to test if Christ lives in our lives, then we pass that test. But if he does live in our lives, that life is going to look like something. And it's going to be someone that has compassion for those that are hurting because Jesus has compassion on those that are hurting. And so he's saying if they don't do that, they've demonstrated themselves to be worse than an unbeliever. They've denied the faith. So very important for us to see. Now what about the person that we've helped over and over again? Because I know some of us have been thinking about this in the last minute or two. What about those that we've helped over and over again that just take advantage of us? Well, first of all, God says in his word, it's not the worst thing in the world for us to be taken advantage of. He says, give your, if you'd, someone asks you to go a mile, go longer. If someone asks for your outer garment, give them your inner garment. Turn the other cheek. You know, the, he's okay with us being wrong. Paul says, don't sue one another as Christians. Be willing to be wronged. He's not ultimately concerned about us being wrong so much. Now, of course, we shouldn't be foolish and allow that to just happen over and over again. And, and, and we can forgive, but there's a difference between forgiving and trusting again. Someone has to earn our trust. They don't have to earn our forgiveness. That's been commanded. But those that are in true need, and, and, and they really have a, uh, no one else to turn to, and they're in our family, and they've lost a spouse or something like that, we need to reach out to them and, and help them as much as we can. And sometimes there are going to be people that do take advantage of us, that aren't widows or whatever in our, in our family. And sometimes God's trying to get them to get to the end of themselves. And, and sometimes that discipline needs to happen. We recognize that. Paul's already said in Thessalonians, if a man will not work, he will not eat. Okay, so there is a time to, 
to, to put your foot down. But he's talking about something totally different than that kind of situation. So he's already talked about they have no, this widows have no family to help. They're bearing fruit. They have faith in God. They're, they aren't living supremely for pleasure. This woman is a woman of prayer. And now notice in verse 9, there's an age requirement that he adds to this. He says that, that do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. So they have to be at least um, 60 years old to, be, to have the church help them uh, and, and aid them in their physical needs and so forth. And notice he says, into the number. There was a, a very specific group about which Paul is referring and, and, and speaking to. And, and he says, don't let them be taken into that number. Once they're in that number, then the church is going to be taking care of or assisting them in some way in their physical needs. And, you know, we see this in Acts chapter 6, and we looked at that when we looked at deacons, that they were waiting on tables and helping the distribution that was there, and, and uh, they appointed these, these deacons um, to help take care of these physical needs, and they needed to equally take care of the, the Hellenistic or the, the Jews that had a, a Greek background just as much as they were helping the ones that had a, a Hebrew uh, background. So he says, take care of those people. But he says, notice the last part of verse 9, but not unless she has been the wife of one man. And I think the, the idea here is a woman that's been faithful, that the, that the relationship she had with her wife with her, her husband, rather, before she was widowed, was a one that constituted or represented faithfulness. She wasn't unfaithful and, and, and uh, you know, uh, had to be given a certificate of divorce back then because of her unfaithfulness. He's saying she needs to have been faithful before she was a widow. And then, you know, we look at these requirements, these two here in verse 9, and we think, okay, that's very specific. I need to think about those things because they are important. You know, when you're 60 or getting over 60, especially in that culture, it's very hard for you to, 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 uh, to, to work and to do things that are physical because that's usually what they did. They made things. These women, they made things to sell and so forth. Sometimes you can't do that when you get to be that age, and, and he knows that. And sometimes it's harder to be remarried uh, at, at that age. And um, sometimes, obviously not always, if there's, you know, if God has that for someone, it doesn't matter how old they are, God will bring that person but he does call them to be faithful before they uh, had lost their spouse. Now, he continues elaborating on the good works that they're supposed to uh, have coming through their lives. In verse 10, he says, they need, it needs to be well, they need to be well reported for good works, in verse 10 there, if she has brought up children. So he's giving more things. They're faithful with the children that she brought up, and she has lodged strangers. That's interesting. How often do we hear about lodging strangers? You know, in our culture, we could say, well, that's pretty dangerous. But God could lead us to do that today. We should be willing, if the Spirit leads us, to take care of someone that uh, we don't really know. He doesn't say that there's a statute of limitations on it. And after, you know, the first century, that this no longer is uh, wise or safe for people. Sometimes it isn't. Again, I preface that with we need to be led by the Lord on those things. But we need to be hospitable and we need to take in people and help people. This is the Lord's heart in all these technical things. And we have to realize God is doing more than one thing here. He's not only giving families an opportunity to take care of those that need to be taken care of, but he's also demonstrating his heart 
to reach people and to help people and take care of their needs and to, and to be very practical. So often we're so spiritually minded, we think that spiritual doesn't include physical things. And it does. God is very practical related to his priorities in taking care of people's needs. But he also adds there, if she has washed the, the saints' feet. No, he's not necessarily talking about a literal washing of feet. But in that day, that was the lowest job of the lowest servant in the home. And you know, maybe that had really happened in their, in their time. And, and this woman would have actually been seen doing that. But it's more of a reference to just being a servant. He's called every one of us to be a servant. I don't think that's said enough in churches today. To be like Jesus. He said that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That means that we need to be looking for needs around us to be anticipating people's needs, to taking loads off of people, to help people. And, and it's good for Timothy to see this because he needs to see that he is never going to outgrow the need to be a servant. There's nothing, no task that's too uh, low for him as a leader. And he says that's what you should be looking for in these widows that are really widows, is that they've been a servant. They've been serving people. As a track record, we can see it in their lives. And so we need to serve them and take care of them. He says also that she has relieved the afflicted. So all he's saying is that we need to do for her is what she's been doing for others this whole time. She's been relieving the afflicted. Now she's afflicted. And so we need to take care of her, take care of these people. And then he adds at the end of verse 10, if she has diligently followed every good work. Diligently is important there. Diligently, carefully followed every good work. Her life represents good fruit, fruit that remains, fruit that brings glory to God. Those are the ones that God is zeroing in on here as widows. Wouldn't it be great for Timothy to learn all this? I mean, how many mistakes could he have made in messing all these things up, not having the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and how to take care of the people of God and to treat them a certain way. Very, very instructful for him and for us. Verse 11, but refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Now, likely what this is talking about is a, is a younger widow who's young, and she loses her husband, and then she just says, I, you know, I dedicate my life completely over to the church, and the church can take care of my needs, and, and I'm not going to get remarried. And then over time, as things begin to change in her heart, maybe she gets healed up from the loss of her, uh, her husband and, and so forth, that she starts to want to marry again, and she goes against, you know, she, there's no reason for her to go against you know, her, her uh, desire, her previous commitment to give herself completely over to the Lord's work and to not remarry. And, he, and he's saying that uh, she could be under condemnation in her, in her heart related to this commitment that she's made to, to do this. And so he's saying, don't do that. And it, it, he's not saying that it's wrong to marry because he's going to tell them to, to do that. You know, so he's going to tell, tell them uh, in, uh, in verse 14. So it's not that it's less, God's, less of God's will or it's not God's will to marry. He's going to tell them to do that. But if they've already made a previous commitment, it's going to be harder for them to go back on that once they realize that, yeah, you know what? I really do need to be remarried because, um, you know, I, I haven't been called to, to celibacy. He hasn't given me that gift. But, he, but they also 
aren't supposed to be helped if they're engaged in other things that aren't good. Because he says in verse 13, And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Now, so this is really clear for us to see. You know, they're not supposed to be idle. God doesn't want us to be idle. You know, it, it's been said that, uh, um, that idle minds and idle hands are still the devil's workshop. And it's true. He knows that we need to be busy about his business, occupying until he comes, doing that which he's called us to do. And so no matter what age you are, but you know, he's referring to, to younger widows, that they have a lot of time on their hands potentially, and, and that can lead to bad things. And he says they are wandering from house to house, and that's a bad thing. I guess you could bring this up to some Jehovah's Witness women, you know, going from house to house. No. Uh, it's bad what they're doing for other reasons, but um, he's not talking about them. And not only uh, idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. And so God says your tongue's important. What comes out of your mouth? Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we're only supposed to speak that which is edifying to the hearers, that imparts grace to the hearers. And these women were going and gossiping and saying things that they shouldn't say, getting into other people's business, you know, I got convicted from this for sure. I mean, how, how often do we get into other people's business that we shouldn't? You know, it's, we don't want to say it's none of your business to people, but we really need to say that to one another in, a, in an appropriate way. Because so often we're engaged in way, in, you know, into way areas that we shouldn't be engaged in. So we need to be careful about that. Very important. So he says, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachably. For some have already turned aside uh, after Satan. So these younger widows, if they haven't, aren't going to make commit, you know, commitment to walk, you know, in a single lifestyle, so to speak, in dedication to the Lord, and they need to marry, then he says, go ahead and do it, bear children. In other words, be fruitful. God is always interested in us bearing fruit. He's talking about here that, you know, offspring as fruit, you know, bear children and manage the house. That's important, especially in our day and age, where so many of us are forced to have dual incomes, in our lives. Some of us, God hasn't called us to a dual income, but we feel like we have to live so high that we, have, that we have done that without even praying about it. But some of us, God's definite will for us is to have a dual income in our, in our homes. But if he's called the wife to work, he, still, he hasn't called her to work to the neglect of managing her home. And that's important. Sometimes women feel guilty for working. They feel like they're, they're advocating their responsibilities. But they don't have to advocate their responsibilities and work outside the home. Look at Proverbs 31. That woman was very busy. The, the description of that wife was very fruitful. She did work outside the home. She was selling her wares and she was being very fruitful. So it can be done, but you don't want to neglect the house. There are very specific things that God's called every woman, every wife, and especially a mother, to do certain things that no one else can do and no one else is called to do. And no job is supposed to get in the way of those things. But she can do both of those. He said, if we don't, she doesn't do what's right, she will give an opportunity for the adversary, means Satan, to speak reproachably. Of her, of, and ultimately it means of, of the body of Christ and of believers. And ultimately it has its source in making, trying to look God look bad. That's what Satan's end goal would be. So younger women, 
that are, that are widows need to do the things that God's called them to do or else they uh, basically give the rest of the body of Christ and the Lord a bad reputation. That, doesn't, that isn't what God wants. He wants us to be able to give, um, you know, have a good reputation for the things of the Lord and represent the Lord well. Now Paul summarizes in verse 16. He says, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. That's the job of someone that's in the family of a widow. And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. And there's a lot wrapped up in that word really, <laughs> as we've seen. A lot, of, a lot of things that God's targeting. And we have to make sure that uh, we are hitting that target related to who the church is supposed to be helping. So in summary, part of the, being a Christian is taking care of our family. First, our earthly family. And being faithful to take care of those needs. And the church cannot replace the calling of the family. The church is not designed to do that. We can say, oh, well, she's so involved in the church, and the church is, uh, you know, has deep pockets. I don't know where that exists, but sometimes we can think that. And so we're going to let the church take care of, you know, uh, mom or grandma, and, and, and they're better at it, and they're, they're better called to it. No, no. Very specific. We are called to take responsibility for that. And God will give us the grace to do that. The church wasn't meant to be those things for those people. And our, the way that we take care of our earthly family represents our own relationship with God. And men, you are the uh, leader of the homes if you're married. And God's called you to lead that home. And he's called you to be the provider. And if you don't provide for your family, it's a very bad representation of your, the, the spiritual reality in your life. And so, obviously, it's not very common where you see a man just totally not prepare or to pro- provide, rather, for their families. But we see a lot of what those are called deadbeat dads out there that many of them just avoid society and go homeless and to avoid their responsibility to take care of their families. And we, and we see it all the time. Now, we're also in, supposed to, to take care of our spiritual family. So there's two fronts here, the physical family and the spiritual family. And first of all, we need, maybe you haven't rece- seen this group here and those that aren't here and those that are serving back there as your family. I need to reiterate it. We are your family. And how are you when you're around your family? You let your guard down, don't you? In a healthy family. In a dysfunctional family, no, no. I'm not going to give any information because it'll be used against me and there's just some things we don't talk about and all these things that aren't healthy. In a healthy family, everybody's secure. Everybody can let down their guard. Everybody can share their heart. Everyone can demonstrate their failures and their sin and their imperfections knowing that the other family members are going to love them because they're just part of the family. They just are, that's, the, that's their identity. And that's what God's saying for us. To, to, it has to start in the leaders. The leaders have to, to deal with different age groups appropriately and lead, but it carries over into everyone's lives. Every single one of us needs to treat older men a certain way, older women a certain way, other people that are younger than us a certain way, and to love them and care for them and watch out for their needs because it may get to the point in this country where this is the only family that we have, that this persecution gets so strong. And remember, we're going to be with each other for all eternity. You're stuck with us. <laughs> we're not going to have a sinful nature, so that can be encouraging for us. Uh, but we're going to be, this family will outlive our physical families. Very much important to, for us to focus on. Jesus said that things that are invisible are eternal. The things that are seen are temporal. 
And our spiritual family is a spiritual, unseen uh, connection that we have with one another that God uniquely has brought together. And we need to depend on one another. And that means that we have to express our needs. Sometimes I hear about people's needs and they didn't let any of us know. And we want to be there for them. We want to pray for them. We want to, if you go into the hospital, I want to know about it. We want to visit you in the hospital. We want to pray for you before you go through a surgery. We want to help you in times of crisis. We're not going to be perfect at it. We're going to miss it sometimes. And we're going to you know, not be able to do it. But our heart is to do it. But you need to let us know. You need to let one another know. You should be calling one another and saying, I need help, I need prayer, I need strength, and so forth. So God is saying, we're a family, we need to function as a family, and God's called each of us to be a part of a functional, healthy, grace-based, unconditional, loving family. And it's a beautiful thing. There's nothing like it in this world. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for all this instruction, Lord, and we want to be faithful in both our earthly families and and among our spiritual family. And Lord, you could have taken each one of us so many different places regarding these verses. So I pray that you would continue to speak to us, continue to encourage us. And we pray, Lord, that this family, we know, Lord, we can't control what what happens in other spiritual families out there, but we can affect this spiritual family. We pray that you would help us to have the most healthy spiritual family we can possibly have. And we know that only is going to happen by your grace being extended to us and us relying upon your power to be selfless and to be other-centered and to be vulnerable and forgiving and gracious and loving. Help us to always be that, no matter how you add to this church, no matter where you take us as a body. We pray, Lord, that that would always be the case here. And we know it's only by your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together or stand together and pray together. Man, brain freeze still. (laughs) If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to the Lord, very important that you do that. You don't become a Christian by being a good person or believing in God or going to church or being religious. Become a Christian by having a spiritual birth. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, that unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So there has to, there's a physical birth when we're born physically, but then there has to come a point in time where our spirits have a birth. And that happens when God's spirit comes into our life and makes our dead spirit alive. And then we have that relationship with him that we are created for. And that only happens by trusting completely in what Jesus did for you on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the only way that you can get into heaven, by receiving that free gift. So if you haven't done that today... Maybe you've come here a while, and you know in your heart you haven't done that. Come forward. We'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship for which you were created. If you need prayer for any of these things, maybe it's relationship issues or things that you're going to be experiencing or encountering or engaging this week, that's what this family's for. That's what your brothers and sisters are for. Take advantage of those things. Don't leave here without agreeing with another believer in prayer regarding the things that are concerning you. It's always a blessing to be able to study the Word together. I can't wait for next week, and who knows what we're going to learn there. But very excited to be able to do that collectively. I love and appreciate every single one of you in your walk with the Lord. Have a great week this week. Dave?